So what have you learned recently? I mean, really, what have you learned? Not just in this class, but what have you learned in life? What is a life lesson that you recently discovered or hopefully learned? Hopefully you didn't learn it in a painful way, but you just learned it through life experience. That is what we are talking about this week, Chapter 6 and Learning, how we learn all the things that we've learned in our world. So you might think it's a little bit odd to be learning about learning. However, as we will see, it has been a topic that has been at the forefront of psychology since the early founders. When we're talking about learning, what we're talking about, the operational definition for learning is a relatively permanent change in behavior that's brought about by experience. Now, this might be not the way that you traditionally think about learning, because when I ask students, you know, what would be the definition of learning, they frequently think about, you know, classroom learning, the things that they have been learning in this course, the things that they're learning in their other college classes, in math class maybe. And so they think about things like textbooks and a classroom and uh, situations like that. While what we are talking about in psychology is a relatively permanent change in behavior that is brought about by experience. And so when you think about it in this standpoint, for example, maybe the first time that you took an online exam, you realized that you weren't as prepared as you thought you were. Oftentimes, students approach online exams like, oh, it's not that big of a deal. I've got my book. I've got all my resources. I'll have plenty of time to find all the correct answers. And then when they start completing the online exam or they click that button that says begin and they start working on the online exam, they realize they don't have enough time. That that timer ticking away in the corner, beckoning them to work faster and work faster or causing them panic and an opportunity to freeze, they realize that they didn't get the grade that they expected. They didn't think it was going to be as easy as what they thought. And so oftentimes, this is that experience then that hopefully brings about a change. That then for the next exam, students say, I need to prepare a little bit better. I need to treat this a little bit differently. And so that's the experience that brings about change. We can all think of examples in our life, and I encourage you to think about examples in your life in which you have learned something. Maybe not in the traditional sense, but you have learned something. Um, just the other day, as I was running quickly down my stairs, I had just put on a pair of socks and I was running quickly down the stairs and I slipped on a couple of stairs and I learned that I shouldn't be running quite so quickly down my stairs because I'll slip and fall and end up hurting myself, which was what happened in this situation. That's a change in my behavior now because now as I go down the stairs, I'm a little bit more cautious. I try not to run quite so quickly down the stairs. I try not to skip so many stairs. And that is a change in my behavior that was brought about by this experience and relatively permanent change in behavior because at least for now, it's fresh in my memory. Am I six months from now going to be running a little bit quicker maybe down the stairs? Potentially. However, 
that that experience may still be in the back of my head. So there's two types of learning that we're really going to focus on. The first type of learning is classical conditioning. And classical conditioning was uh, brought about by a man named Ivan Pavlov. Now, you've probably heard Ivan Pavlov's name before. He was the man that was very famous for doing what? For working with dogs. Yes. So what he did, he actually was a physiologist. He was not interested in psychology at all. He kind of stumbled upon classical conditioning accidentally because he was actually interested in digestion, how dogs digest their food specifically. And so what he did was he set up this experiment to measure the saliva in their mouth. And inadvertently, through the process of this experiment, he stumbled upon classical conditioning because what he found was he would signal the dogs when they were about to get fed, he would signal them with a bell. And this was his method in then measuring the saliva in their mouth. And so he would give them their dog food. He'd ring a bell and he'd give them their dog food. He'd ring a bell and give them their dog food. And what he found was that over time, when he rang the bell, the dog started to salivate. They had a physical change in response to something that had never brought about a change before. So there was a relatively permanent change in their behavior brought about by experience. And this was in the case of the dogs. And so that was, so this was how classical conditioning got started. This pairing of two items, something that is neutral or that means nothing, which was the bell to the dogs. If you go out in the wild and you ring a bell, dogs aren't going to naturally start to salivate. And so this was a neutral stimulus that was paired then with something that is an unconditioned stimulus. An unconditioned stimulus is something that doesn't need to be taught. So the food, when he gave the dogs the food, they would naturally salivate. Nobody had to teach the dogs how to be hungry. Nobody had to teach the dogs how to salivate. So it's an unconditioned stimulus. And so he paired this unconditioned stimulus, the food, with the bell, which was a neutral stimulus. And over time, that association between the two items became paired. And so whenever he would ring the bell, the bell was no longer neutral. Now it was a conditioned stimulus. And when he would ring that bell, the conditioned stimulus would bring about a conditioned response, which was to salivate. Now, one things that one of the things that students always get hung up on in um, classical conditioning, and I think it's because there's so many terms that go along with this, is that your unconditioned response and your conditioned response will be the same. They the dogs were responding in the same way; they were salivating, but they're now responding to something different. And so instead of the dog salivating to the food, now the dogs were salivating to the sound of the bell. And so that's the main uh, tenet of classical conditioning is that it's this association between two items that now brings about a change in your behavior. We can think about it in our world in terms of uh, humans for classical conditioning. Um, one of the most common classical conditioning situations is that if you, um, is eating when you watch a movie, 
Most people, when they sit down to watch a movie, they have their popcorn or their potato chips or maybe some sweet, uh, you know, snack like gummy bears or um, chocolate of some sort. And so if you do this at the movies, every once in a while, it's not that bad. But if every Friday and Saturday night you sit down to watch a movie and you bring your popcorn with you, what will happen is over time then, on Monday or Tuesday, when you sit down to watch any TV program or you sit down to watch any movie, all of a sudden you'll have this desire for something that is a snack of some sort. And so that pairing together over time creates this desire or creates this response that anytime you sit down to watch TV, you're now going to um, want to eat something. Um, no different than they say that, uh, you know, if you're, if you uh, nap frequently, if you nap frequently on your couch, that over time, when you sit down on your couch, you may be, find yourself that you're getting tired. Or um, another great example is for people who eat in their car all the time. People who eat in their car, if every time, if every morning you eat breakfast in your car or every lunchtime you're eating in your car, or maybe you're eating in your car frequently because you're constantly on the go, which we all are here in the United States. So every time that you get in the car, then you're going to have this desire to eat in the car. Um, or smoking is another one, smoking and vaping. If you vape every time that you get in the car or you light up a cigarette every time that you get in the car, you make this association. And so every time that you get in the car, you're going to want to vape or smoke. Um, no different than there's some people that only smoke when they drink. That association together. Um, or they every time they eat chicken wings, they drink beer. Um, that again, that association is um, going to form and over time, something that was previously neutral will now become a conditioned stimulus. So um, previously, you know, your car may have been neutral and you never smoked in your car before, but the pairing of smoking and driving together over time, whenever you get in your car, you're now going to respond by smoking. So that is the basics of classical conditioning. Now, there are some other um, situations that are classical conditioning, like conditioned taste aversion. Conditioned taste aversion occurs when we eat something that is not good. So I'm sure all of us can think of a time when we went out to eat and had bad food. Um, we went out to dinner and maybe had, you know, um, some bad seafood. And so um, I had a student one semester who said, yes, they went out to Chinese food and had bad Chinese food. It was horrible and made them violently ill, made them sick. And so after that, what happened? Right. They did not want to eat Chinese food anymore. They not only swore off that one Chinese restaurant, but they swore off all Chinese food. They said they wouldn't want to eat any more Chinese food because it made them so sick. That association between the Chinese food and becoming ill was so strong that it made them not eat Chinese food for at least a very long time, a relatively permanent change in their behavior. 
Now, this can happen. It happened one time with me that I actually went out and had quesadillas. And then that night, I ended up getting the flu. And even though um, I knew that it was the flu that was causing me to be ill, I still, every time somebody talked about having quesadillas or going to the specific Mexican place, it kind of made my stomach queasy and I didn't want to go. And I didn't go there for a very, very long time. Um, And so that's another example of that classical conditioning. We associate that, um, we associate that uh, stimulus which in this case was the quesadillas, with becoming violently ill. And so then the response when somebody talks about those quesadillas is that I kind of get a little queasy and don't want to talk about quesadillas or going out to eat at that place. That is, again, another example, a specific type of classical conditioning called conditioned taste aversion. Now, we also experience something called stimulus discrimination. Stimulus discrimination is that we have the ability to discriminate certain stimulus in our environment. The classic example that I use in in my class is the Krispy Kreme hot and now sign. The Krispy Kreme hot and now sign makes people salivate. When you see that sign lit up, a lot of my students, when I show them in class, they're like, oh, now I'm thinking about donuts. It makes you salivate because you've associated that hot now sign with um, those hot donuts that melt in your mouth. Thankfully, though, we experience stimulus discrimination. And so it's only the hot now sign that makes us salivate. We don't salivate for all neon signs. The Exxon Mobil sign doesn't make us salivate. The sheet sign doesn't make us salivate. It's not all neon signs. It's just that specific one. And so that's an example of stimulus discrimination. We experience Um, that stimulus has become associated with those hot now donuts. And so we experience stimulus discrimination because it's not all um, neon signs. Now, baby Albert experienced stimulus generalization. Baby Albert was one of Watson's um, subjects. And John Watson was really the founder and the well, the father of classical conditioning. He believed very strongly in classical conditioning. He said that no matter what um, you do, that he can really train a baby to be whatever you want it to be, just based on classical conditioning, based on the stimulus and this response kind of interaction. And so what he did was he brought baby Albert into the lab and he showed baby Albert a white rat. And baby Albert, it was neutral. The white rat was a neutral stimulus. The baby was not bothered by the white rat at all. He showed uh, baby Albert a white um, bunny rabbit and baby Albert was not bothered by it at all. It was a neutral stimulus. Then separately, He hit a metal pipe up against a radiator. It made this horrible, loud, clinging metal noise. And it made the baby, it made baby Albert cry. And so that is an unconditioned stimulus. This loud noise brought about this unconditioned response, which was for baby Albert to cry. And so what Watson did then was he paired that clanging of the loud metal pipe up against the radiator with the presentation or with showing him 
the white rat. And so he did that together. He hit the metal pipe up against the radiator while he brought out the white rat. And very quickly, baby Albert became afraid and would start to cry whenever Watson brought out the white rat. Now with baby Albert, he experienced something called stimulus generalization. With stimulus generalization, was baby Albert generalized those characteristics of that white fluffy mouse or white fluffy rat, he they stimul uh, he generalized it to anything that was white and fluffy. So now when Watson brought out the white rat or not white rat, the white rabbit, um, baby Albert started to cry, even though Watson had never conditioned baby Albert to the white rabbit. He took the characteristics of something that was white and fluffy and generalized them. He generalized him so much so that baby Albert was also afraid of white fluffy cotton balls, white fluffy snow, anything that was white and fluffy like Santa Claus's beard, baby Albert would start to cry because of the conditioning that occurred with the white rat and the clanging of the metal pipe. Now, one of the things that Watson did find and that um, other um, behaviorists have found is that fear is eliciting fear is very effective in classical conditioning. If you want to condition somebody quickly and you want it to be a relative and want it to be a almost permanent change in behavior, instill fear or elicit fear. Now, obviously, probably not the best thing that we want to do in a humane society. However, it is a very effective means of bringing about classical conditioning. Unfortunately, now, unfortunately, baby Watson, or not baby Watson, baby Albert never had an opportunity for um, extinction to occur. And extinction, what extinction is in classical conditioning is that when the neutral stimulus that has now been conditioned when it goes back to being a neutral stimulus. So for Pavlov's dogs, what Pavlov did was he would present them with the dog food while he rang the bell, present them with the dog food while he rang the bell. And over time, that bell became a conditioned stimulus. And then what would happen is he would just ring the bell and the dogs would salivate. And that worked for a little while, but after time or over time, after a little while, when Pavlov rang the bell, the dog stopped salivating. And so that conditioned stimulus went back to being a neutral stimulus. And the same thing can happen to humans. Extinction can occur, as we were talking about with the neon Krispy Kreme sign. If you go into Krispy Kreme and the donuts are not hot now and they don't melt in your mouth, then that neon sign becomes more of a neutral stimulus and less of a conditioned stimulus. And so the next time your friends say, hey, look, the hot now sign is on, you may be like, mm, yeah, last time the donuts weren't hot and fresh. I'm not going to go in there this time. And so now it goes from being a conditioned stimulus to a neutral stimulus. With baby Albert, unfortunately, he moved before Watson had the opportunity to turn that white rabbit or that white rat, or all those fluffy white cotton balls back into a neutral stimulus. Um, however, all was not lost. Um, from all indicators, um, 
we know that baby Albert um, was able to function in his world. And so we'll talk about some other things um, that can cause extinction as well. There's one last term that I want to throw out, which is stimulus, um, which is spontaneous recovery. Spontaneous recovery is just what Pavlov proved, is that after this stimulus goes from being a neutral stimulus to a conditioned stimulus and then back to a neutral stimulus, he could bring about the behavior again. So he could um, cause the dogs to salivate again for the bell and he could cause it very quickly by simply pairing the bell with the food again. And so we can do the same with humans. You go into Krispy Kreme, and even though the last time you went in and the hot now sign was on, the donuts were cold and hard, this time when you go in, if the donuts are warm and melt in your mouth, spontaneous recovery will occur, and now that hot now sign will cause you to salivate every time you see it on again. Classical conditioning is all around us still in the world, and it was a reigning theory for many, many years. And then B.F. Skinner decided, B.F. Skinner started looking at um, how we also, as humans, have something called free will. We have the ability to make choices, and our choices can we can then shape our behavior or other humans can shape their their behavior um, by rewards and punishments so because we have the ability to make choices we can choose behaviors we can choose not to respond to certain things not to respond to certain certain stimulus and so B.F. Skinner came up with the principles of operant conditioning. Operant conditioning is just that, that we can shape behavior through rewards and punishments. And so um, Skinner looked at how um, reinforcement or rewards and how punishment can change our behavior. Now, there's a lot of terms here, and I don't want anybody to get confused. So when we're talking about positive, we're talking about adding something to our environment. And when we're talking about negatives, we're talking about taking something away from our environment. Now, reinforcement is obviously something that is going to increase behavior, and punishment is designed to decrease behavior. So the basic tenets of operant conditioning is just that, reinforcements and punishments, but whether or not we're adding or taking away from the environment. So the first aspect of operant conditioning is positive reinforcement. Positive reinforcement is adding something to the environment with the hopes of increasing the likelihood that the behavior occurs again. So if a child in your be if if a kid, you know, maybe your own child or children that you work with, if they do a behavior that you would like to increase, maybe they say thank you, then you can give them positive reinforcement, which would be adding something to increase the likelihood that that behavior occurs again. Something that you add may be a compliment. 
that was a really good job. I really like your manners. And so you're adding something to the environment with the hopes of increasing their behavior. Another example is you could add something physical, like a sticker. They do this all the time at schools. They have sticker charts and the stickers that kids love stickers. Um, it is designed to increase the behavior in the kids. So when they do something good, they get a sticker. When uh, they do something good, maybe they get a piece of candy. Maybe they do something good and so now they're able to be the line leader. Those are all examples of positive reinforcement. You are adding something to that child's environment with the hopes of increasing that behavior, increasing the likelihood that they do that behavior again. There's also negative reinforcement. Now, negative reinforcement is not something bad. Oftentimes, students get these confused and they jump right to the conclusion that it's something bad. Negative reinforcement is taking something out of an environment with the hopes of increasing the likelihood that that behavior occurs again. So an example would be if you have a headache and you take a nap and the nap takes away that headache, then the likelihood that the next time you get a nap or the next time you get a headache, you'll get, take a nap. That is increasing the likelihood that you'll perform that behavior again, taking a nap, in order to remove that headache. Now, when we're talking about negative reinforcement, frequently what we are talking about is removing a negative stimulus. So you're removing something from the environment that's negative with the hopes of increasing a behavior, a behavior that occurred right previously before it. Another example of negative reinforcement is those annoying seatbelt buzzers in your car. When you get in your car and you don't buckle your seatbelt, what happens? There's this negative buzzer, this, this chiming that happens every so frequently that's really annoying. And so to remove that chiming of that really annoying bell, you buckle your seatbelt. And the idea is that you're taking away this annoying beeping sound and with the hopes that you'll increase the behavior. Increasing what behavior? The behavior of buckling your seatbelt. That that over time will become automatic. You'll get in your car and you'll buckle the seatbelt so that you don't have to hear that annoying buzzer. And so that's negative reinforcement. We're increasing our behavior. And in, in how we're increasing the behavior is removing something negative from our environment. Now, there's also punishment. Punishment is designed to decrease behavior. And so there's positive punishment. And this is where in the beginning I said, don't get hung up on the terms. Positive means that we're adding something and negative means that we're taking something away. There is positive punishment. Positive punishment means that we're adding something to the environment with the hopes of decreasing a behavior. So an example of this would be adding chores. If, you know, you come home with bad grades and um, your parents want to, um, you know, decrease those bad grades, they may add more homework. They may give you extra, you know, um, study guides to do or extra um, homework to do. And that is designed to decrease that um, behavior of having bad grades. If um, you're late, maybe you're late for curfew, and your parents then make you do extra chores, that is that they're adding something to the environment with the hopes of decreasing the likelihood that you're late again or that you're uh, to change your behavior. This is also the idea behind spanking 
or behind physical punishment, meaning the that the military carries out. If you don't make your bed, um, or if your um, if your space, your barracks are not clean, they add physical punishment, meaning that you have to do extra push-ups and you have to do extra running, and you ha- that's that physical punishment. They're adding. Um, physical activity to your environment with the hopes of decreasing the likelihood that your barracks aren't clean again. That Those are all examples of positive punishment. And then there's negative punishment. Negative punishment is when we remove something from the environment with the hopes of decreasing the likelihood that that behavior occurs again. So this is the basis of timeout. So if kids aren't acting the way that you want, maybe if a child in your environment is hitting or yelling, you send them to time out. And so what you're doing is you're removing all of the fun and their ability to interact with the hopes that they're going to decrease the likelihood that that behavior occurs again. Now, this is where operant conditioning can backfire for a lot of parents and for a lot of people is that um, if you're working, and I hear this from parents that I work with all the time, I send my kids to timeout. Timeout just doesn't work for my kids. And usually I ask, well, where do you send them to timeout? Oh, well, I send them to their room for timeout. Well, what is in their room? Oh, well, they've got a TV, they've got their Xbox, they've got all of their toys. This is no longer punishment for them. This is now a reinforcement. So if a child is not acting the way that you want them to act, if they're acting out, if they're, um, you know, throwing temper tantrums and you send them to their room for timeout and yet they have access to all of their toys and all their games, this has now become a reinforcement. You are now reinforcing that behavior that you don't want to occur, not punishing it. The same is true for kids who are throwing temper tantrums in the store and a parent says, just this one time, I'm going to get it just this one time to shut you up or just this one time because, you know, I don't have time to deal with you. That is now reinforcing the likelihood that that child will throw a temper tantrum in the line again or when you're checking out rather than punishing them. Um, this is also the case I had a, uh, about two semesters ago, I had a prison guard from Butner Federal Penitentiary who was in my class who said that they have what they call snowbirds. And snowbirds were people who would go out in usually around October, November time frame and commit a crime. And oftentimes they would commit the same crime that would land them in jail from January until about May, which also coincides with the winter months when it's cold outside. And so these people had learned that they can go out and commit a crime and then go in and have a warm place to stay and three meals a day from January until May. And oftentimes in these cases, it was because these people were homeless and they had learned relatively permanent change in behavior that um, prison was not a punishment for them, but was actually a reinforcement for them. They were having something added, a positive reinforcement. They were having something added to their environment that was now... Um, increasing the likelihood that they would do that behavior again so that they could have their meals and a warm place to sleep provided for them. 
Now, one of the things with operant conditioning is that the reinforcement or the punishment must come immediately after the behavior. An example that I use in class all the time is that um, if your parents decided that they found out that you stole something when you were six years old, and now at 18, 19, 20, 25, 30, however old you are, they've decided that they want to come and punish you for something that you did when you were six years old. Is it going to change your behavior? Is it going to change your behavior from when you were six? No, not at all. So the reward or the punishment must follow the behavior. And this is oftentimes one of the arguments of what is wrong with the criminal justice system. If you get a speeding ticket, yes, you're issued that ticket right there immediately. However, is it going to change your behavior? Maybe for a little bit, at least until you get home, you may not speed. However, for the vast majority of us, we don't even go to court until two or three months later. And so by the time you go to court, you've probably returned to your habit of speeding. And so it doesn't really necessarily change that behavior immediately because it doesn't happen. It doesn't follow right after the behavior. Now, looking specifically at reinforcement and most specifically at positive reinforcement, there's something called schedules of reinforcement. We don't want to continuously reward behavior because over time, children or even adults will just perform that behavior in order to get the reinforcement or in order to get the reward. And then what would happen if the reward or the reinforcement were to stop? Yes, very similar to Pavlov's dogs, that the behavior would become extinct. It would revert back to its previous behavior. And so in order to bring about a relatively permanent change in behavior, we want to reinforce the behavior on a varying schedule or on a schedule of reinforcement. And so again, not to get hung up in the terms, there are ratios and there are intervals. When we're looking at ratios, we're talking about a number. And when we're looking at intervals, we're talking about time. And so there's fixed and there's variable. Fixed is again referring to something that is set and variable is referring to something that varies. So the first one that we're going to look at is we're going to look at a fixed interval schedule. A fixed interval schedule means that individuals are rewarded after a set amount of time has passed. And so an example of this is going to be your paycheck. Hopefully you are paid on a fixed interval schedule. After a set amount of time has passed, whether it's two weeks, whether it's a month, whether it's a week, then you're rewarded. You are given a paycheck. That is a fixed interval schedule. There's also a fixed ratio schedule. A fixed ratio schedule is referring to a set number. So after you have performed a set number of behaviors or the behaviors that we're looking for, then you're going to be rewarded. This is all over the place. Any one of those shoppers cards that you have or your Starbucks card where if you buy six coffees, you get the seventh one free, that is a fixed ratio schedule. They're rewarding you after you have performed that behavior a set number of times, whether it's three, whether it's six, whether you've bought one and you get one free. That is what a fixed ratio schedule is. They're rewarding you after a set number 
of that behavior has been performed. There's also variable, and so we'll start with a variable interval. A variable interval schedule is after a varying amount of time has passed, then you will be rewarded. So after a variable number, a variable amount of time has passed, then you'll be rewarded. Um, a lot of people think that the slot machines in Vegas um, pay out on a variable interval schedule, meaning that it's been so long, so now that's that machine is bound to pay out. That's actually not how they pay out. It's an algorithm, and we'll talk about that in just a minute. But that that's an example of variable interval, is that people believe that it's going to happen because it hasn't happened in a while. Um, and another example of a variable interval would be pop quizzes. Um, in classes, a variable interval, if um, they, if instructors administered quizzes or pop quizzes on a variable interval schedule, meaning after a varying amount of time has passed, maybe it's been three classes, maybe it's been 12 classes, maybe it's only been two classes, the instructor gives a pop quiz. And the incentive or the idea behind the pop quiz is that because you don't know when it's going to happen, you have to constantly be preparing for it. So it would actually increase learning and increasing study behaviors because you never know when it's going to happen. And so you always have to be prepared for it. And so that's the variable interval. The last one is a variable ratio. And so after a varying number, then um, participants would be rewarded. This is actually how slot machines work, is that the algorithm is a varying number. So um, maybe after two pulls of the handle, the slot machine pays out. But then maybe the next time it's 22 pulls of the handle, or it's 12 pulls, or it's 18, or it's 13. Um, that's after a varying number, then you will be rewarded. And another example of this is if you're an hourly employee, your paycheck, the actual number in your paycheck is going to be a variable ratio, meaning the more hours you work, the more your paycheck will be. You're paid on a fixed interval, meaning every two weeks, but the amount in your paycheck, if you're an hourly employee, will be a variable ratio. Now, there are specific situations in which each one of these schedules, as we just talked about, um, will increase behavior. And so that's why there are different um, schedules of reinforcement that are suitable for different behaviors and reinforcing that behavior or carrying out that behavior. I encourage you to look around in your environment and see where are these schedules being implemented. Um, you'll find them a lot in marketing techniques. Um, obviously, the fixed ratio is the most common one, but I bet if you looked around, you'll find some variable ratios or variable intervals. Um, there are some variable ratios at grocery stores where they just randomly give, um, you know, the a varying number of customers, or maybe it's the 51st customer gets, um, uh, I don't know, a $25 prize. But every day it varies, and so it's a different customer number every day. Um, so you'll look around, and I bet you'll find these schedules of reinforcement in your environment more than you believe. And the last form of learning that we're going to talk about is observational learning. Observational learning is learning that occurs, just as it sounds, by observing. 
Sometimes we can learn vicariously or through the actions of others. So when you're sitting in a classroom and you see somebody go up and ask the teacher something and the teacher responds in a negative way or doesn't respond very kindly, then it may change your behavior in that you may stop and say, mm, I'm not going to go and ask the teacher that. Or observational, may, observational learning may occur in another way. For example, if you see, if you're at a sporting event and you see somebody, you see people storm the field and nothing happens to them, you as well may get caught up and storm the field as well because observational or vicarious learning has occurred. And that is learning that doesn't actually necessarily involve you, but occurs because you see somebody else doing it. And so that changes your behavior. Um, observational learning, there's lots of research on observational learning and how effective it is. Um, it is fairly effective, especially in children. Um, children learn a lot of behaviors um, through observing through watching others. And so I encourage everybody to model good behavior because you never know who might be watching your behavior and who might be learning from it. I also encourage you to take these um, aspects of learning and apply them to your own life. How can you use classical conditioning to help you learn the material in this chapter? Or how can you use operant conditioning to learn the material in this chapter? Our last writing assignment will be applying these to your life. And I encourage you, maybe you decide to sit down, set a timer, spend 20 minutes at night um, studying this information, uh, relearning it, talking about it, applying it in your own life, maybe even teaching it to somebody else, and then reward yourself. Give yourself 10 minutes of free time to do your favorite thing, go for a walk, reward yourself maybe with a piece of chocolate, and see if over time your behavior changes. See if you can have a measurable change in your environment based on these principles.